We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode and catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. MichaelsFlooringOutlet.com. And welcome to Overnight America. Welcome back. Wow. These weeks just go by fast, even it is the second night of the week. Big show with Rich Rubino joining us in the next segment. But before we get too far along this trail that is Overnight America, I wanted to bring in producer Mike for a moment because something happened to him just a couple of weeks ago, and he has been out of work for, is it four weeks now? Almost nearly a month? Is that right, Producer Mike? No, I was uh, in to run the Mark Reardon show for the last two weeks, excluding New Year's Eve and uh, Christmas holiday. Oh, so you were actually in working. You just were not working with me. So from what I understand, you'll do anything to get away from this show, including go on vacation and hurt yourself. Wait, so what happened? Can you explain what happened? Uh, sure. So I flew out to uh, Denver, Colorado, and uh, I have a friend who lives in Lake Dillon near uh, Copper Mountain Ski Resort. Uh, had a four-day ski trip planned in the mountains, and on the second run of the first day, I broke my arm and was unable to do anything the rest of the trip. So do you dress like Ned Flanders when you're out skiing? You have like a ski outfit that's skin tight and you're out there. It's like you're wearing nothing at all. No, I uh, (laughs) prefer more of the baggier attire so that the kids know that I'm one of the cools. Oh, of course. So how did this happen? You were just skiing and you slipped or how, how (laughs) how does one break an arm when skiing? Well, essentially, I, uh, Wanted to do a jump. I saw a ramp as I was flying down the mountain. Uh, I kind of saw it last second. Hadn't really scoped out the jump yet. And decided, let's try and hit it. Let's get some big air. And uh, unfortunately, rather than landing on my feet, I landed directly onto my shoulder. Oh. So wait, the snow at this point is so packed down, it's probably like hitting pavement. Uh, yeah, on the runs. It was a groomed run. So yeah, it's it's pretty compacted there. It's not very powdery. Oh, that, that sounds like it hurts. It's not like what happens in the video games where, you know, your player blinks for a moment and you're back on your feet and you're on your way. This must. Did you know immediately that something bad just happened or was it later that you found out that you're, uh, you had broken uh, your arm? Well, immediately I knew it was bad, but I did not. Uh, I didn't right away know that it was broken, but I could tell you 
right away and for the remainder of that day, I could not you know, lift my arm, whether it would be to take off my helmet or adjust my goggles or adjust my headphones. That all had to be done left-handed. Uh, but I did actually continue to ski for t- three more hours after that. Um, thought that it was just badly bruised. Uh, sleeping that night was very hard. Uh, you know, I had to keep that part off the ground. And I thought maybe when I wake up the next morning, I would be good to go back out and ski. Uh, the next morning it was even worse. I could not, I I could not, uh, move it at the shoulder whatsoever. So that was when I went into urgent care and got the x-rays. So do you have a cast or a sling or something or, or are you able to use your right arm now? So... I have full mobility from the elbow down, which is nice because uh, I am right-handed. Um, the first week to ten days, I had to be in a sling at all times, other than you know showering. Um, but now I'm at the point where I've I've been moved to sling for comfort. So I actually okay. don't have it on right now, but I I sleep in it and I kind of rotate throughout the day because it is a nice brace. It you know, it, it supports it well. So sometimes it's it's nice to have it on, but sometimes you want to take it off and, and flex yeah. it around a little bit. Well, producer Mike, um, I'm glad that we're working again together. I think the last day we worked was December 7th. So it's been a long time and that you're doing well, you're progressing. It, it pained me to hear <laughs> that you go out on vacation and while skiing, you break your arm. And I thought, well, it pains me, but not enough to hide it from other people who may want to hear the story that happened. So I'm glad that you uh, feel comfortable enough doing that. Yeah, it, it was fine. I will brag about uh, a couple things that I picked up. Um, all the bars were closed in Colorado while we were there, so there wasn't much to do once I had a broken arm and couldn't ski. However, ironically, one thing that was open was the bowling alley. <laughs> so we went there on Saturday night. Uh, you know, got to keep your masks on when you're up at the top. But when you walk down to the lane, you can take your mask off, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point is, I, I did bowl left-handed three games, wow. bowled four strikes. Whoa. Got into the 80s each game. Whoa. Wait, four strikes over? Over the course of, of the three games? games total. That's actually impressive. Uh, I got to say, maybe you're a natural lefty and don't know it. You just have to start building up the strength in your arm. And mm. next thing you know, you're going to have to, you'll have competing arms. You won't know which one to use. Yeah. I, I also, um, being as I get home later than my family, sometimes I have to leave them notes, you know, for them to read in the morning. <laughs> I had to daughter. learn to do that left-handed, a couple Christmas uh-huh. cards. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, the good thing is you have at least one arm and you're not trying to write those by putting the pen in your mouth and signing that way like they do in the movies when someone's in a full body cast. Well, uh, producer Mike, I'm glad that you're doing better. I'm glad things are healing. You're lucky you're at that age where things heal. So that's a good sign. Uh, thank you for explaining that. I appreciate it. Yes, my pleasure. I just imagine him as Ned Flanders in that Simpsons episode where they're out skiing and Flanders is wearing that skin tight bodysuit. And he's like, it's like I'm wearing nothing at all. Wearing nothing at all. And when I think about skiing, I I think about just a few things. And that's the number one thing. I've never actually skied. I don't know if I have the endurance to do that. It seems very, very consuming. You know, I got worn out a couple of days ago. We had to buy a new washing machine, and I had the neighbor come over, and the two of us carried the old one out of the basement and up into, I it's sitting in the yard right now, I'm waiting for the bulk pickup. And we took the one that I purchased, and we walked it downstairs, and that pretty much, I got spent for the day. 
And I just realized how badly out of shape I am right now because just that simple act of moving a washing machine around was enough to completely ruin the rest of my day. And it was almost like I worked out for five hours, almost like when old running backs talk about what it was like after a game. You ever hear Jerome Bettis when he would talk about the next day, he can only crawl up and down the stairs. He couldn't stand up right after uh, playing football. I felt like that just moving a washing machine for all of 30 minutes total. So I can't imagine <laughs> trying to ski. Well, I'm glad that he's doing better and it's good that he's back on the show. So when you call in today, just imagine producer Mike picking up the phone with his left hand. So be careful with that one. Rich Rabino is joining us right after the break. He's the author of American Politics on the Rocks. And yes, there's a lot going on. So many, many questions regarding the Electoral College and objections and vice presidents, all they've handled that in the past. That's next on Overnight America KMOX. Listening to KMOX has never been easier. Siri, play KMOX. And Overnight America continues. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. I've been waiting for a while. It's been a couple of weeks since I've spoken to Rich Rabino, American Politics on the Rocks. That's the name of his book, politidashgeek.com. How are you, Rich? I'm doing well, Ryan. Uh, very tumultuous times, but I'm doing well. <laughs> it has been. What a week indeed. <laughs> what a week. So, Like I mentioned uh, in the past, it seems like we've used this phrase many times. Oh, this has got to be an exciting week for you. But like, really, this week is probably a week that you can't really uh, take your eyes off of the news because there seems to be a lot of history going down this week. But it's not that it's uh, very rare. We have seen in the past objections during this process. What I'm kind of hoping you can do is talk about what's going to be happening in a few days when the uh, Electoral College votes come up. Vice President stands up there asking for objections. Tell me about this process. Okay, it's one of the few times where you actually have a joint session of both houses of Congress. Usually, so in other words, the, the House and the Senate are in the same chamber. Usually you see this when the President delivers the State of the Union or when a dignitary is speaking. That's essentially the only times you have that. But this is actually constitutionally, um, constitutionally what has to happen is essentially the state is essentially the, the state's results are read. So, for example, you know, they'll say Arkansas delivers their six electoral votes for, you know, that'll be Donald Trump and there'll be no objection. So they'll go on to the next state. Nancy Pelosi stands up there, sits up there as the as essentially the Speaker of the House. And Mike Pence is up there because his constitutional role is actually the president of the United States Senate. He's actually paid not by the executive branch, but as a part of the legislative branch. Of course, he only votes actually in the cases of a tie. Usually he's not up there. Usually the president pro tem, um, the Constitution, sits, sits up there or one of his designees. Usually it's a freshman member who, you know, sits up in the, in the Senate and says, you know, I, I now do recognize the gentleman from Wyoming, the gentleman from Louisiana. So this is one of the few times the vice president is actually doing his constitutional role of sitting up there. So what happens is a House member, once it gets to one of the contested states, Mo Brooks, the congressman from Alabama, is, is going to be leading about 30 de- mem- members of the House, and he's going to object to the results of about four or five, about five different states that are contested, Arizona certainly um, being one, Georgia certainly being another. So then Mike Pence says, okay, is the, does the objection in writing, does it, have the, uh, does it have the approval of a House member and a senator? If it doesn't have a member, have approval of anybody in the United States Senate, then he just says, essentially, he says, well, I, I don't accept your objection because constitutionally you have to have both, and he moves on um, to the next. And this is actually part of the electoral uh, Vote Act of 1887, which basically kind of codifies the way that this process works. 
Mm-hmm. So in 2000, in 2000, for example, um, there were many. There were some Congress people. Stephanie Chubbs Jones of Ohio got up there. Cynthia McKinney of uh, of Georgia got up there. Maxine Waters of California, and they said we have objections. And Al Gore was in the kind of unceremonious position of having to of having to gavel down the objections because there was no senator who agreed. 2004, mm-hmm. there was a dispute about Ohio. So Stephanie Tubbs Jones of the state of Ohio um, objected, and she persuaded a senator, Barbara Boxer, the, the senator from California, to agree that there should be an objection. So they actually got the objection. So what happens is basically both chambers recess for about two hours. They debate this. They debate the merits of the objection. In this case, only literally only one senator, Barbara Boxer, agreed to the objection. So they came back, and the obje- and the objections was not um, agreed to. So they essentially moved on. So Barbara Boxer, you know, the, the, Dem- the leadership of the Senate didn't want her to do that, and the Democrats and the, the Democratic Senate did not. Wa- the Democrats, they were a minority, but in the Democrats in the Senate did not want her to object, but she still objected. So what's going to happen this time around? There's going to be objections. The House member, then the Senate, and then they're going to have that two-hour recess. Obviously, since the House um, is controlled by the Democrats, and since um, since uh, since mo- a lot of Republicans, even in the House and the Senate, agree with the Democrats that they should not be an objection, what's going to happen is. It's going to come back, and they're going to say essentially they're going to have, they're going to vote on it, and they're going to say that essentially the objection was not withstood. So essentially, Mike Pence is going to have to um, be in that awkward position of declaring the loss of his own um, of Donald Trump and Mike Pence, unless something you know something um, cataclysm happens between now and Wednesday. Wow. Okay. So that is the process. So basically, every objection to an individual state could result in a two-hour recess if there's a senator associated with it. So there's multiple states that are, yeah. looks like, could be contended or at least uh, debated. So how long could this process actually last? <laughs> it, could last a, it could last a while. The interesting thing is, I mean, I think even the senators themselves, Josh Hawley, obviously, from Missouri, is kind of the, um, is kind of the ringleader in this. Um, you have other Republicans, Ted Cruz, for example, um, you know, uh, James Lansford from from Oklahoma. You've got 12 Republicans so far who have agreed to sign on. But I think they all pretty much know that this is essentially going nowhere. It's more or less to try to send a message. Um, and I think that everyone kind of knows that. So it could take it could take a long time for the objections to actually to actually happen. But at the end of the day, um, you know, barring barring some extraneous circumstance, which has about a you know, quarter of a quarter of one percent, um, Donald Trump will not be elected president. And Mike Pence will have to stand up there and say that. I now think that essentially that uh, Joe Biden won the election. Yes, that's I think even Josh Hawley on Fox yes. News gave an interview to Brett Baer just recently. I saw him trending on social media, mentioning that even Josh Hawley uh, said that, no, we're not anticipating any changes in the sense we don't think Donald Trump is uh, going to be the, uh, a second term. It's just, again, I, I think a lot of times people just want to air their grievances. And this is going to be the venue that they're able to do that kind of like they've done in the past. And it's funny because as much as I pay attention to these things, I've never once actually watched this process. This is something that's always gone under the radar for me. And I think a lot of other people are just learning about this process for the first time. Well, it's interesting because usually, I mean, this is a pretty pro forma um, exercise. Last time around, there were objections, but there were no senators who agreed. So you had Joe Biden essentially standing up and say, do you have, has a senator agreed? The House member said no. And so Joe Biden says, you know, it's over. So usually it's, it's usually just kind of ceremonial. There have been some instances, that, by the way, where you had a vice president, this is really interesting, who actually ran for president, was a nominee of his party, lost, and had to declare himself the loser. 
Um, yeah, Richard like Nixon, Al Gore. <laughs> oh, he was one of them. Yeah, he was one yeah. in 2000. Richard Nixon, very close election, about 113,000 votes either way could have, could have changed. Richard Nixon, the vice president who lost, some people think that he actually won that election because of they thought that the Kennedy machine had, um, had manipulated the votes in Cook County. He had to get up there and say John F. Kennedy was the winner. Now, interestingly, in 1968, another close election, Vice President Hubert Humphrey, who lost in a photo finish to Republican Richard Nixon, so he's the president of the Senate. He did not actually preside. What he did is he was – so there was a – in Oslo, Norway at the time, there was, the, um, there was a funeral for the first elected uh, secretary general of the U.N., so he was attending that. Uh, conveniently, you know, he could have presided. Um, so what happened at that time is he did not have to have that unceremonious role. What happens is the president pro tem of the Senate, that's actually fourth in line to the presidency. And that's the person who essentially has the ceremonial role of leading the Senate when the vice president is not there. As I say, they usually give that up. They usually then delegate it to other members. But Richard Russell from Georgia was actually up there, and he was actually the one who was reading the um, results rather than uh, – I mean, who was rather accepting the results rather than Vice President Hubert Humphrey. And, of course, in 2000, you had the instance of Al Gore having to go up there and having to say that, um, you know, at one point he said um, – he said, I think it was Maxine Waters got up there and said, well, I don't have a senator. And then, then, then so the vice president says, well, the rules do care. And then everyone was kind of <laughs> laughing. Meanwhile, while he's objecting, while he's ruling her down, he's saying thank you, thank you um, with, his, um, with his heart while ruling the exact opposite way. It was just an absolutely just fascinating uh, phenomenon. Watching that. In the eyes, you can see it. The, yes. uh, oh, yeah. You, you can definitely see it in the eyes. Well, is the whole process of objecting when someone stands up and says, I object, is that something that is not uncommon? I mean, pretty much every presidential year, is there some sort of objection that goes nowhere? Or is this kind of just a, a modern thing where, you know, since 2000, you start to see it more often? Usually it happens when there's a close election. Uh, 2008, for example, was not a close election. So as a result, there was no, you know, no member of the Republican Party was willing to go up and say that, you know, John McCain, you know, won a certain state that was closed, for example. So um, usually you see it when it's a very close election. You've seen little instances. For example, there was an electoral vote in North Carolina that was supposed to go to Richard Nixon that landed up going for Alabama Governor George Wallace, who was running on the American Independence Party. So there was an objection to that electoral vote. Um, so, you know, there are kind of minor things that happen, but generally speaking, you don't see these objections, certainly. If it is a close election, you do see the objections, but they're usually the most vociferous members of the party that lost. Very rarely do you see people kind of centrist getting up there. Usually the people in the center, center left, center right, are usually the ones who kind of the establishment members usually say it's over. But they're always kind of people in the fringes. Usually lots of times it's for domestic consumption. They're trying to placate their own bases. They're trying to fend off potential primary challenges. They see I was with my nominee, you know, from the absolute beginning. But very rarely does it actually go anywhere. You know what this kind of reminds me of? So if you've been in a meeting and it's going to be an hour-long meeting and it gets towards <laughs> the end and you're looking at the clock and you're ready to just do the rest of your work for the day and it's at the very end and whoever's holding the meeting says, does anyone have any questions? And then like eight people raise their hand and you're thinking, oh, we're going to be here all day. Uh, so when it comes to this whole process, are they obligated to stay there for the entire time in, before they before they certify all of this or could they break for the day and come back the next day that's a good question i guess theoretically i guess that they could break i mean it's supposed to be done on january 6th i know individual members certainly you can't force a member to actually be on the house or senate floor 
Um, you have the situation now where some members, for example, who've been restri- who've been restricted because of COVID, are kind of voting proxy, that type of thing. And you certainly could have members that just decide, you know, the House and the Senate are interesting because you can assent, you don't really have to be on this floor. You don't have to actually show up for work. That's why you can see presidential candidates spending two years running for president, never showing up. Um, so it's kind of voluntary <laughs> if you actually do your job. But um, you know, obviously, they'd be worried if they did. If they did, kind of a House member or a Senate member did walk out in terms of you know local media picking that up and saying, "Why were you there?" But uh, my guess is that everyone essentially would want to actually be there for the historic moment. They don't want to be embarrassed as being one of the few members who's not there. Uh, although, you know, certainly if they wanted to go home and hold a fundraiser instead, they certainly have the liberty <laughs> to do that. <laughs> and oftentimes they they do hold a lot of fundraisers when they should be um, actually in the chamber. <laughs> Yeah, calling in interviews. I'm sure some of the TV networks may have some live hits scheduled while these uh, <laughs> processes are going down. You know, it, as it's happening, it's almost like um, like in racing or whatever when they pull someone off to the side and like they're getting their car worked on and the actual racer is talking to someone in the media or, you know, between the glass and hockey. So, uh, Rich, do you mind holding on? I'd like to talk to you more about this process. And yep. I'm still trying to get an idea of... Uh, the rarity of this, because I think a lot of people get the impression that, oh, this is such a unique thing that's going on. But it's good to point out that, yes, this has happened many times in the past where people have had objections. And I want to talk a little bit more about uh, 1887, that Electoral Count Act, and, okay. and maybe um, why it's in place and, and how that's been looked at, if there's any differences over the years with that. So let's do that after the break. We'll take a look at your weather. Polita-geek.com is where you can find Rich Rubino online in his book, American Politics on the Rocks. Soon, his latest book. I can't wait to learn more about that coming up. It's Overnight America KMOX. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. News Radio 1120, KMOX, the voice of the Cardinals. Blitta-geek.com, where you can find Richard Bino, some links to his work, and also his latest book, American Politics on the Rocks. How is your book that you're working on? How's that going, Rich? Uh, It's going well. It's going to be uh, very long. It's going to be, essentially, it's political trivia, pretty much everything going back from the founding of the Republic to contemporaneous times, and 
it should be over 400 pages right now. I've um, pretty much done the substance of it, so it's pretty much just the uh, just the uh, editing process, which can be quite assiduous. Wow, 400 pages. That's a big one. Uh, Very big font, right? though. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you're cheating like in high school when you have to put a paper together, so you're adding the margins a little bit, you know, you try to pad it out a little bit more to, to get to that threshold that the teacher wanted. Yes, absolutely. I actually remember doing the opposite one time. There was one professor that wanted um, in college that wanted everything to be done in a certain t- It had to be three pages, a, pa- a paper, something like that, but it all had to be done, and it couldn't go any further than the margin. So I remember I actually got legal paper and put it on legal paper. So it became the uh, Rubina rule that you were able allowed to do that if you wanted to put it on a bigger paper instead. I kind of, um, I guess they kind of circumvented the system there. Mm, I like it. So with this, uh, what's going to be happening this week? We know that there's going to be some objections. We know that there are senators that will sign off on it as well. I wanted to kind of ask you about when all of this is said and done and all the objections are heard and it doesn't go anywhere. So what exactly happens at that point? Pence is going to stand up. He's going to say, all right, uh, we've gone through all the states. We've counted all the electoral votes. Here's the final count. He, uh, What does he say at that point? And then there's no turning back. Is that how it works? Pretty much. Um, unless, you know, I mean, um, as I say, there's always this, if there's some sort of extraneous circumstances, something happens between now and Wednesday, you know, some cataclysmic event. But I don't see that happening. Essentially, that's what's going to happen. And then it's all a matter of the political fallout. Um, senators like Josh Hawley, for example, are certainly going to benefit from a lot of Trump supporters. If Trump does not run in 2024, a lot of people will say, you know, he was loyal to us and that we're potentially going to stay loyal to him. If he runs, Ted Cruz also. If Ted Cruz chooses to run in 2024, if Garcia does, he's also up for re-election in the Senate, so he's got to kind of, um, you know, decide what he wants to do. But he's another one. Um, someone like Tom Cotton in Arkansas who's considering running in 2024, who said that he believes the state should have essentially plenary authority over the electoral votes, is not going to object. That could potentially hurt him with Trump Trump supporters. So it's kind of the political fallout more than anything else. And then you have folks like John Thune, the number two man in the, United, in the Republican Party, the Republican whip, who has come out against this. And Donald Trump is now saying that there should be a primary challenge for him in 2022 in South Dakota and calling him Mitch's boy. So it could potentially disbenefit him. So it just it, this is all really about politics. I think no, um, nobody really, no one, no rational person actually believes that this is going to somehow transmogrify the whole the whole uh, election. And I just go back to the whole idea of the Seinfeld Festivus, which is airing out your grievances, <laughs> and that's I that's think really where you said here. that because John Thune's favorite television show is actually Seinfeld. <laughs> I um. <laughs> I, I wonder this, too, and maybe you can kind of help me when it comes to the political atmosphere around this time. And since there have been many examples of when someone stood up and said, I object because of this estate, a lot of times there's no senator that'll sign on with it. Sometimes yep. there is. However, I don't remember a time where so many people were upset that there was going to be objections. So if you go back and look at some of the previous years where this has happened, is there always this much animosity for the congressmen that are going to stand up and air some of these grievances? Or is this something that you're not used to seeing? Not to this extent. In 2000, um, pretty much every member that objected were um, people were from extremely safe Democratic districts. I think the Democratic leadership 
knew that they were going to get up there and then the day was going to be over. I think they knew themselves that they were just going to get up there, try to make objections. In 2004, there was a lot of backlash against Barbara Boxer because she had said that she objected to not because, to not um, agreeing to be that senator who, who that senator who objected in 2000. So in 2004, Stephanie Tubbs Jones essentially persuaded her to object. I think the Democratic leadership, there was a certain amount of mossy that just wanted to kind of have the election over with, but she didn't. She, her, her goal, by the way, she says in the aftermath, was not to actually change the election, but to put a spotlight on voting irregularities in Ohio so the next day people would be talking about it. But um, they're really, I mean, this time around, it's actually kind of similar to those elections because if you look at every member, of the, every solitary member of the House that's objecting and every member of the Senate that's objecting, with one exception, are from safe states or safe districts. And the one, obje- the, one obje- the, one extent- the one exception this time around is probably Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, which is a swing state that actually went to uh, Biden this time around. So he's kind of the one um, aberration or anomaly in the process. So when they go into this debate for two hours, how is that structured? Um, really, is it behind closed doors, or are you going to be able to watch it on C-SPAN? I believe it's going to be behind closed doors. I don't know. Okay. I think so. Not a whole lot that could be done there. So it's like a private TED Talk. <laughs> a yes, like yes, that. absolutely. <laughs> All right, so this was put into place, what, 1887. Uh, do you know the history of why this was? Yeah. it's done the way it is? So the Constitution is very ambiguous about basically what happened at the go back to the Constitutional Convention, 1787. They couldn't agree on how to award electoral votes. So all they said was essentially each state shall appoint in such a manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. And that's all that the United States Constitution says. The Electoral College wasn't even codified until an 1845 act. So essentially, the states have plenary authority to award their electoral votes any way they choose. Go back to the first election, only three states actually awarded their electoral votes to whoever won the state. Some of them had state legislatures, for example, deciding who was going to choose the um, elector. Eventually, the Democratic-Republican Party, which controlled, a lot, which controlled the states and controlled the presidency, wanted to maximize um, their votes at the presidential level. So in a lot of the states, they decided that they would award all their electoral votes to whoever wins the national popular vote. Currently, Nebraska and Maine do it differently, which is constitutionally permissible. They award, their elect, they award two electoral votes to whoever wins the state, and then the rest of the electoral votes are awarded to whoever wins a congressional district. So this past time around, in Nebraska, the congressional district right around Lincoln and Omaha, which had a lot of college students, actually voted for Joe Biden, whereas the state of Nebraska itself overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump. In Maine, the one congressional district that goes from Aroostook County, the farthest northern reaches of the state, down to the very bottom, it's actually the largest congressional district east of the Mississippi, went for uh, Donald Trump, whereas the other congressional district went for Joe Biden. So in 1876, there was a disputed election. Ohio Governor Rutherford B. Hayes uh, won the Electoral College, literally 184, 5 to 184, over Samuel Tilden, the governor of New York. Tilden actually not only won the popular vote, but actually not only won a plurality, but won a majority of the, um, had actually won a majority of the vote that year. Um, So he basically won the majority, but did not have to actually assume the office. So because of that disputed election, there was some talk about how do we codify some sort of a system so by 1887, they codified a system that says that what has essentially has to happen is there has to be a joint session of Congress, and, this, and the vice president has to stand up there, and the vice president or the speaker pro tem, in his absence, could supplant him, has to stand up there, and whoever the president of the Senate is, and has to say, 
you know, who the, who who won the electoral votes, and they also have a have a provision in there that if there wants to be an objection, then essentially there can be objections, and you can overrule the objection of the vice president. But that essentially does not happen. And there it is. Uh, essentially, the last official thing Mike Pence will do. Is there anything after that the vice president is involved in? Uh, I mean, I guess theoretically, um, he's still vice president. He still is the president of the Senate. If there is to be a tie vote, I don't see this oh, happening. No. But between now and January 20th, he could actually show up. He actually did his constitutional duty yesterday where he um, provide, he presided over the uh, swearing in of new senators and then you see him, he does the kind of the ceremonial one where each senator comes, usually with their family. They, they, um, they, they're sworn in by him, so he's done that. So, you know, essentially it's just a matter of if he wants to actually show up for a tie-breaking vote. He doesn't have to do that either, by the way. Theoretically, if he doesn't, he could not, he could not show up and just let it stand. But he's, he's essentially, um, and I guess the other thing is, you know, he is still, um, he still does receive, you know, intelligence briefings um, in case something were to happen for the president between now and January 20th. And I guess it would be an interesting question to see if he actually shows up the inaugural. I'm assuming he will. Yeah, I noticed that with proper social distancing and masks, there's a lot less sniffing that went on this time around. Just, just a <laughs> poor joke. But, okay, so afterwards, <laughs> what happens to vice presidents for the most part? They, do they just kind of, like, go off into the sunset, or have some of them done some interesting things in the future if it's not political? So I know some may run for office again in the future, but, you know, what about the ones that decided to get out of politics? Yeah, most of them stay in politics. Dan Quayle, actually, so I guess would be the in- an interesting one, so... And two, so he wrote his memoir after he after he lost in 1992. Him, his, his George H. W. Bush and himself lost. Another Indiana he, one, yeah. Yes, he considered running for governor of Indiana. Did not do it. Considered running for for president in '96, in part because Dick Luger had already taken a lot. The other said the senator from Indiana had taken a lot of the money from Indi, had taken a lot of donors from Indiana. He chose not to. Then in 2000. He ran for president again. Um, he ran for president himself. Never really made it all the way to Iowa. Dropped out, and he's since gone into the financial the financial services industry, um, I believe. So he's essentially works on equity, works on you know that type of stuff. Um, usually, they stay, either stay in politics or they retire. Um, I will say that the probably the most interesting example back in eighteen. So when there was a panic in eighteen thirty six, eighteen thirty seven. There was a panic, an economic depression. There were twenty five percent employment in some places. So Richard John, Richard Mentor Johnson, who was Martin Van Puren's vice president, had some financial issues himself. So this isn't after he retired, but this is while he was vice president. He actually took a leave of absence, went home to Kentucky to open up a tavern and spa <laughs> for a seven-month right? period. That sounds like a sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> he, literally, he, he literally did that, and it, he actually came back because at Martin Van Buren's behest because um, – there was a lot of criticism there saying, why is your vice president spending so much time working on his tavern in Spawn, Kentucky? It actually became very lucrative for him. That sounds like, oh, man, it's almost like you take an actor from the 80s and they would put it on NBC. He was vice president of the United States. Now he owns a tavern in a bed and breakfast starring and then fill in the blank uh, Tom Selleck or you know something like that. <laughs> it would be a great movie. The, though the fascinating part is he was actually in office at the time. So he actually was vice president. Oh, that's after, interesting. And then after he actually ran for office and he, he, got, he lost a couple of times. He actually ended up winning a seat in the Kentucky legislature, if you can believe it. A former vice president of the United States, a heartbeat away from the president, becomes a member of the Kentucky legislature. (laughs) (laughs) I love things like this. All right. So that's uh, where we stand now this week. 
it, it pretty much is the uh, the climax of it all. Well, not even that wouldn't really be it. It's kind of the end of it all. It's like when you're on a roller coaster and they got that one last little hill right before you know the train is about to get back into the platform and you're about to get off, and that's the end of it. Rich Rubino, polita-geek.com, and if people wanted to find you on social media, where are the good places? Yeah, I mean, go to Facebook and type in Rich, last name Rubino, R-U-B-I-N-O, or just go to Twitter and type in Rich Rubino, P-O-L. His current book, American Politics on the Rocks, and his new one, which is, I'm so excited, uh, every time we're going to do this, i got to get an update on it, because 400 pages, I learned something new. There's a lot of political trivia out there. You have it all memorized, which is impressive. And on top of that, um, I always enjoy your insights into the history, things that have happened in the past, putting things into context. Thank you so much, Rich, for joining us tonight. Thank you so much. And Rich Rubino joins us on the Quiver River Electric guest line on Overnight America KMOX. This is Overnight America, sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com on KMOX. And welcome back to Overnight America. Wow, what a wild roller coaster ride, this saga that people have been following, mostly because. So yesterday, the news started to break. Tanya Roberts was an actress that was a Bond girl. She was in, I think they said Charlie's Angels. I didn't know any of these things. I, I'm not a Bond guy. I never watched the old James Bond things. It, GoldenEye was the first one I watched in the 90s, thanks to the tie-in to the 64. And th- even then, I got it, I think, at a blockbuster watching it on VHS. So I wasn't really into James Bond. So I never saw the old ones. I didn't recognize her from that. I didn't realize she was in that 70s show. I-, I did watch that every once in a while. But Tanya Roberts was at least trending yesterday because I think it was her publicist said that she died after collapsing at her home on Christmas Eve. And that was trending, and that was the story. And then the TMZ headline today, Tanya Roberts, she's still alive. I guess that's one way to see if people have any interest in you. I mean, how many times have there been this idea of faking your own death to show up at your own funeral to see who would be there? This was one of those moments where people could actually watch it. And those moments have happened. There was a very famous instance in Indiana in the Fort Wayne area where I was working, um, it was a really tragic. There was a car accident and two girls inside the car. They were so badly injured. One girl died. The other one lived and they declared the wrong girl dead. So what ends up happening is in a coma, they tell the parents, okay, your daughter's in a coma. The other one, sorry, your daughter died. As it turns out, they mix the two because they're very similar looking. And then when she comes out of a coma, she says, no, that's not me. What a wild roller coaster ride. They had her funeral and everything in that time. And they turned out they had the wrong person. Really, really interesting. Uh, so Tanya Roberts is alive. The interesting part about this is today, apparently her boyfriend was giving an interview to Inside Edition. And wouldn't you know it? He gets the call to be notified she's still alive while he's doing the interview. It is really wild. Is this how you'd want to be if, if it was me? I think that I would say, ah, I think we'll do this interview later, right? You don't need to see me cry in front of the camera here. Mystery surrounds the medical condition of Charlie's Angels actress, Tanya Roberts. 
who was reported to have died yesterday and then today was said to be alive. Tanya suddenly collapsed on Christmas Eve after walking her two dogs. Newspapers across the nation today carried reports of her death. And I was interviewing her longtime boyfriend, Lance O'Brien, when the shocking, almost impossible to believe news came in that Tanya was alive. All right, did you hear the phone ringing in the background? If they show him, it's a Zoom call. So he's sitting there, and I think he's got a green screen behind him. Now you're telling me that, that she's alive? Oh, thanks the Lord. Thank God. He says Tanya did not have COVID, but was placed on a ventilator because she was struggling to breathe. He says due to COVID-19 protocol, he was not allowed to be at her hospital bed at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center to comfort her until what he thought were her final hours yesterday. What just happened, Lance? What was what was that? The hospital's telling me she's alive. <laughs> and they're, they're calling me from the ICU. So the hospital just called you right now and told you that Tanya is still alive? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so happy. I, I, this is so bizarre. I don't know if this is all artificial. This is, oh man, I feel really funny saying that out loud. I almost should, I should be careful. But just watching the mannerisms of it all, I think about in situations where someone you're very close to, you learn about them actually being alive. I, I, I think I might. This is not how a normal person would react because it sounded kind of like a fake cry. It looked kind of fake. I don't know. I'm sorry. I, I feel really rotten for even saying that out loud. But isn't this strange, though? How could the publicist and all of these other people say, no, 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 she died. And then all of this come back and say, oh, no, she's actually not. There's something else going on here. This is just strange. The blue-eyed beauty dazzled in the last season of Charlie's Angels, chosen out of 2,000 actresses. Da, 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 Charlie's Angels. I had Jeff message me almost immediately yesterday when this news started to break on Twitter, and I, I had to break it to him. I really don't know who this is, and it's unfortunate. I think it's just a generational thing. I, I just didn't know who she was. On December 19th, where she seemed like she was feeling fine. Okay, I've been basically just hiking with my dog and doing my workouts in the house. Her boyfriend says Tanya was experiencing problems with her liver function when she was hospitalized. He is obviously shocked and enormously relieved that reports of her death were greatly exaggerated. Yeah. <laughs> nice tie-in. Greatly exaggerated. So Inside Edition got a call. Um, very interesting with Lance recording that interview right at that time when he gets the call. What a coincidence to it all. Well, that made for a moment and a half, didn't it? Wow. Just when you think all hope is lost. All right. Coming up in the next hour, the electoral college and the challenging of it and what's going to happen this week. You heard the interview with Rich Rubino. I'd really like to hear from you. Um, you, you know what to expect. I think everyone knows exactly how this is going to play out. What are you rooting for? Are you just looking to see the last airing of grievances? Or perhaps are you hoping for there to be something miraculous happen there too and things turn around? What are you looking for? We'll take your calls next hour on KMOX. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. 
Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.